Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is Brian O'Kelly. Brian is the co-founder and CEO at Scope3. They are leading the fight forward on the climate crisis, doing incredible work all over the world. I think, Brian, we last saw each other at the annual uh, gathering of the World Federation of Advertisers last year in Istanbul. Um, you are doing incredibly important work, uh, and I'll share some stuff we're engaged with on the climate crisis as well uh, over the course of our conversation. Uh, but I'm absolutely thrilled to welcome you here and get a chance to talk to you. We've never had a real detailed conversation. It's always a little bit of a drive-by, so I was really looking forward to this. Yeah, well, I'm excited as well. Well, thanks so much. So, Brian, I, I want to go back and dial the clock all the way back to your time at Princeton. And I know that you uh, got a Bachelor of Science there in computer science, but computer science back in the mid-90s meant something very different. Uh, and you ended up having a great, great run in tech. I think we first came across you during your tenure at AppNexus. But I'd love to talk about sort of what computer science meant in 1995. And did you ever imagine, you know, even studying at such a great institution like Princeton, where it would all take us and where it would go? Yeah, well, first off, I didn't think I was going to be a computer scientist. Uh, I, I started off as an electrical engineer and uh, you had to take a computer science class. And about a week before the final I got mono and I was just incredibly sick. And so I missed all of the study halls and all of the, you know, prep. And the night before the computer science final, I, uh, I just read the whole book. I, I basically skipped all the classes, you know, cause they were in the morning. And so I went into the final delirious feverish, did the three or four problems, went back and went back to sleep. And the next week <laughs> they gave out the grades and I had an A plus because they'd actually had a question on there that we hadn't studied. Uh, we'd never actually done this part of the course, but because I'd read the whole book and I didn't know it was extra credit, I just did it. And so I had like 104% on the final. And I was like, man, I'm gonna switch majors. Like I will have an A plus from the beginning. Like, this is great. Maybe this is what I'm supposed to be. Um, you probably shouldn't make life career decisions, you know, with a, hundred and something fever, but, uh, you know, that was the beginning. And, uh, as it turned out, Princeton has the best theoretical computer science department in the world. What theoretical means is you barely write any code. You know, you, you go to these lectures and they talk about big O notation and the professors are thinking about these incredibly complex things like distributed systems and multi-computing and, you know, shared virtual memory and you don't do anything. And so I had a buddy at the University of Oregon as a computer scientist, and they're like writing code every day. Like, how do you make Java programs compile? What's a database? And here we are at the dawn of the internet, you know, probably the most important five years in the history of computer science when the whole world goes online and we're talking about algorithms. And so, you know, at the time I found that incredibly frustrating. What it turned out was that <clears throat> anybody can write code. But this theory, like really understanding the depths of how these systems actually work, you know, how to actually scale something almost infinitely was the most powerful superpower in the world. Because when I graduated in 99 and everything was going hockey stick, there were very few people who knew how to make a system scale horizontally. All, all that means is instead of getting a bigger and bigger server, there's a limit to how big a server can be. You get as many servers as you need. And in fact, you know, the joke was a server back then looked like a pizza box, you know, like from Domino's and that all you had to do was just stack up so many pizza boxes that you could actually handle the entire internet um, in a data center. And, and that magic was what enabled me to build, you know, fundamental internet infrastructure, you know, basically this entire ad exchange and programmatic advertising was based on fundamental computer science principles that very few people were focusing on because until about 2000, they just didn't matter. Amazing stuff. And, you know, someone who wasn't involved in writing code, but, you know, was understanding sort of all the principles, if you will, behind it. Um, you must marvel at where this stuff has all gone now, 20 some odd years later. 
Well, one thing that's amazing is how much easier it is to write code that can scale across the whole internet. You know, back then we didn't have cloud computing or Amazon web services. Like if you wanted to put a server on the internet, you had to physically buy a server, drive to a data center and, you know, install it in a rack and wire it up. I mean, our first data center at Rate Media was at uh, in, in Chinatown. And I remember being down there and we were so poor, we had to strip our own wires and attach our own ethernet connectors. I would be a terrible electrical engineer because I swear maybe half of my connectors worked. And so we'd spend hours debugging and they're like, Brian, I just plug in the wires to the connector and crimp it. I, I am not a good crimper. Um, but nowadays you don't have to know what the wires are or the crimping or the plugging or the heating or the cooling or you just type a couple commands and all of a sudden you have code that's running around the entire world at incredibly high speed on Cloudflare or Amazon or Google. I mean, we've just made the whole thing so incredibly easy that all this magic that used to be so valuable, you know, now the cutting edge is AI. You know, how do you go build these massively complicated generative AI systems? Um, it's a whole different generation, a whole different kind of thinking uh, than what I learned in college. So I guess what I'm saying is I am now obsolete. Oh my goodness, hardly, hardly. So talk about young Brian. Were you a, a big science computer you know, geek kid as a high school student or growing up? Definitely a nerd. Um, you know, you can imagine me walking to school, you know, with my high top, my basketball, I play basketball, you know, wearing black shorts and a, you know, t-shirt because I had basketball class first period. Our, our basketball coach made us shoot like a hundred free throws a day, you know, and I was just like, what's the point? I grew up in Oregon. It's going to rain, you know, why dress up? And so, you know, just rain, shine, snow, hail. I just wore the same thing every day you know, rolled through my day. I played the clarinet in the band. So you can see I was a very cool kid. Um, but yeah, like sitting in the back of calculus class, like programming my HP 48G calculator to see if I could make a game, you know, like that was what I thought of as fun. What's probably unusual about me versus a lot of nerds is as a senior in high school, I convinced my school district to give me a bunch of leftover Apple II computers because they'd upgraded to Macs. And they let me buy them from the district. And after basketball practice every day, a few friends and I sold them out of one of their garages. For you know, We bought them for five bucks, we sold them for 75 bucks. And so I was an entrepreneur, um, as nerdy as I was, you know, I was already figuring out, you know, like, it's nice to figure out, nice to run a business, you know, it's nice to do things with people you like, you know, to do something that's valuable, right? We're taking families who can't afford computers and giving them access to technology. So uh, even early in my life, I was already figuring out that there's something special about this capitalism thing. That's a pretty good profit margin from five bucks to 75. I have one that's not nearly as clever as that, but uh, you ever walk by Manhattan, you see these guys on the corners with boxes and boxes of sunglasses. Yeah. And they're selling them for a couple bucks each. So those are all sold as a wholesale area in the 20s. Oh, and yeah. where, I, where I went to college at Emory in Atlanta, I used to buy the sunglasses. You would buy a pack, it was either 10 or 12 in a box, and you'd buy it for you know, a dollar a piece. And I would sell them for $5 a piece uh, at Atlanta. N not as good a profit margin, but not terrible. Uh, and uh, not as clever as, uh, as refurbishing and selling Apple computers. But uh, that was my little entrepreneur. There's your New York Atlanta arbitrage, right? Oh my I mean, gosh. I like it. My, to this day, I, I take pictures of the sunglass tables and I send them to my daughter and torture her and say, you know, this could be a good business for you one day. So uh, early on, you distinguish yourself. We'll talk about Right Media, where you were the CTO, but right away you got into it and had a great run at LogicSpan and, and rose up the ladder pretty quick as a young guy. You were a VP, your next gig you scaled up to EVP, uh, developing proprietary technologies at, is, am I saying it right, Satova? Yeah, that's right. And, and, but you rose up pretty quick. You were just out of college, 1999. You're working here in 99, 2000, 2001. Didn't you start off as like, you know, uh, some sort of junior account guy or something? How'd you end up as a vice president in 20 minutes? 
Is that that Princeton breeding? Is because you had a good outside jump shot playing JV ball uh, for the Tigers? What was it? Yeah. Well, I, of course, I think the basketball skill is almost all of my success. Um, unfortunately, I wasn't very good. But, uh, you know, the dot-com time is hard to remember just how fast companies were growing. Like I joined this little consulting firm. After college, I started a dot-com that failed in about six weeks. So six weeks after college, I went from managing a 30-person startup to sleeping on my dad's sofa. And so by the time most people were like, you know, taking some time off and going to their like first day at a bank, I'd already started a, a dot com, burned through a half million dollars, gotten fired, and like been on my dad's sofa. So things were happening fast. And so I took this job um, in Hoboken at this company, LogicSpan. Uh, the founders were three Accenture, um, it was called Anderson Consulting back then, but like partner track folks who had been working on basically this idea of using data science or what we would almost call artificial intelligence today to predict what people would buy when they called like the customer support line for a credit card company or, or a or a cell phone company. So you'd call Amex and say, hey, I have a question about my account. And they're like, hey, I see that you live in Miami and you like cruises. Did you know there's a Royal Caribbean cruise leaving in two weeks and we have half off tickets? Would you want to go? And they would sell this. Like they could make so much money and this predictive technology in that split second would make a decision about what to offer you. And their big idea was, hey, we shouldn't do this for call centers. We should do this for the internet. And so they started LogicSpan. Now, by the way, if that sounds a lot like programmatic advertising, that's where we figured it out. Because I went to work for them and within like weeks, it was obvious that we were onto something. Um, the partner, whose name was Helena May, was like six months pregnant and was managing this million dollar contract at American Express. And as far as I can tell, just lied to them about how pregnant she was. And so about a month into this massive million dollar project, she's like, I got to leave. Brian's in charge. I mean, I was 21 in like four months and I'm running a massive project working for the CTO of Amex on a billion dollar, like predictive real time personalization project. Talk about being thrown out of the nest before your wings are even grown. And so I was flying back and forth to Phoenix, you know, going to the World Financial Center, trying to run this project. I think they had to make me a VP to make it sound credible. And of course, this was more like a Wall Street VP, you know, where everybody's a VP, but it didn't matter because, you know, they gave me a team and I had five or six people working for me and we had to deliver and we did. And I, I met Phil Seitz, who was the CTO guy, and seven or eight years later. And he's like, Brian, your crappy code is still running in production. And I'm like, okay, that's good, right? He's like, it's made a billion dollars of incremental profit and we can't get rid of it. And I was like, all right, successful consulting project. Like, good job. Um, but that that's kind of how it happens, right? You just get pushed into a role and, you know, battlefield promoted. And next thing you know, like, we're running this live real-time code on their website. And that's where I first bumped into DoubleClick because here we are predicting offers for logged in users. DoubleClick was like, what do you do if someone's not logged in? And there was no prediction, no real-time knowledge, nothing. It was the dumbest system. And here we are running this like cutting edge real-time prediction code. And we were like, I wonder if we could do that. I wonder if we could do all of this predictive analytics on someone who's not logged in. And that is where basically we got the idea for what if we did, you know, real-time predictive ad serving. So that's funny, right? How like a random job after college, like you just happen to plop into a place where you see this opportunity and 20 years later, I'm still trying to solve the same problem more or less. But I love that story. You're 21, you're in the hot part of the center of the frying pan and you rightly say, we've got to figure this out. And you do. So can we talk a little about Right Media, where you were CTO, uh, uh, one of the legendary early players in the business uh, and uh, did incredible work and, uh, you know, really was ahead of its time in so many ways. Well, Right Media was special because the CEO was this guy, Mike Walrath, who for many years lived right by you in Port Washington. And uh, 
you know, one of the most brilliant operators I've ever met. Like he could figure out what would actually drive a conversion on a performance campaign in just milliseconds. He was like a, a, a human, you know, generative AI. And so really my job was just like, try to build a system that was half as smart as Mike was at making stuff work on the internet. You know, our first, our first business was like running, you know, punch the monkey creatives. Like, you know, these, these ads were so like, just like a, a monkey who would like dance around the screen and you're supposed to click and punch the monkey. I don't know why, but people would do it like crazy. And then it would pop up thing. Hey, do you want to sign up for a magazine? You know, and people bought the magazines. It was crazy. But even that, like figuring out which placement on the page to serve this ad and who do you serve punch the monkey and who do you serve the fart button or whatever random creative our, our graphic guy came up with. Um, but this is a, you know, really interesting way to test the limits of how effective a system can be. And the thing is, Mike would be like, oh, that's never going to work because it's a skyscraper. And back then, remember, screens were so small, like those long, tall ads, they wouldn't fit in the screen. And so he'd be like, nope, we never buy skyscrapers. They never work. And he was right. You know, he was right. He's been doing it long enough, you know, and he had all these like heuristics, you know, he's like, oh, nope, you know, the problem with this is we're buying at too high a frequency. Cut the frequency. Like, how do you know? He's like, I just stared at the reports and it's pretty obvious. He's doing exactly what all these machine learning systems do now, but with like the human intuition on top. And so it really challenged me to like, I actually read tons of research papers. This is the beginning, this is before the term data science existed, but I just read every research paper I could find on statistics and predictive analytics and probability analysis and what could we get that was fast enough to run in real time, but predictive enough and like almost intuitive enough to, to capture the insights that Mike could do with his eyes closed? And so I came up with this idea of, of a Bayesian predictor, which basically just means we use, you know, like this sort of almost like a running calculator of what's working by a bunch of different dimensions. And you, you know, mash it together, like, how does frequency look? You know, the more we learn about different frequency, the more or less we bid. And this idea of like almost bidding or, or valuing ads was prescient because it let us build bidders and, you know, all this auctioning, but we didn't build it to bid. We just built it to try to value a given user in a given context, you know, kind of like Mike could do. And almost like once we had the computer version of Mike, then we were like, well, now what? You know, we know in a very nuanced way what every ad is worth, but what are we going to do? Pick up the phone and call someone and be like, hey, publisher XYZ, could you send us a little lower frequency on Tuesdays? And actually in, in Minneapolis, a little higher frequency, but but not on Tuesdays. Like the idea of somehow conveying all this information to a publisher was impossible. So I was like, well, what if we just had the publishers, you know, ask us on every impression what we wanted to pay? And that was like, oh, I mean, that's amazing because then we could just very granularly tell them more of this, less of that. Even Mike couldn't do that. And that was the first SSP. It was my publisher bidding platform. Not because I was like, let's invent an industry. It was like, well, man, you know, we have to find a way to do this. And, you know, piece after piece after piece. Again, none of this was planned. It was just, oh, well, you know, huh, we, we're holding these auctions, we're bidding on these auctions, but all of our competitors, are too dumb to bid on these auctions. Maybe we should build them some software so they can get smarter so that we can have more to bid on. You know, it's like, it's one of those things where in hindsight, it, it's like such a crazy path to where we got. And now the whole world works this way. And it feels like we knew what we were doing, but of course we didn't. We were just like solving the next problem and the next problem and the next problem. Comes to mind the words inadvertent heroism. Exactly. Yeah. Or, or maybe it's not heroism. Maybe it's inadvertently like, you know, ruining the internet. I'm not sure, but no. certainly not the plan. Uh, listen, there's a, that's a whole nother can of worms is, is the, good, <laughs> the good and the bad side of everything that's happened. So let's talk. I really want to get to scope three and, and go deep there, but uh, we can't not talk about your incredibly successful run at AppNexus, uh, almost a dozen years, sold it to AT&T. Uh, and, uh, what a company that was and what a run. Thank you. 
Yeah. Like so many things, you know, in hindsight, I realized much more how special it was than I did while we were running it because it was such a battle from day one. You know, we were competing with Google and Yahoo and Microsoft and AOL, you know, these are like massive global companies. And we're like 18 people, you know, in a tiny office, um, all racing to be the first to build real-time bidding and this idea of programmatic advertising. And I think we had the advantage of being the people who literally had been around from day one, like we actually knew how it worked, but we'd sold all of our IP to Yahoo and all of our tech, and they had all of the team. And so I had to wait until my non-compete ended. And even then I couldn't solve any problem the same way because they had the IP. So I had to reinvent everything from scratch. And so if you think about that inadvertent heroism, think about doing that and then being like, okay, I have to figure out how to inadvertently do this again differently. Like, you know, what everybody else was years ahead and Google had, you know, search and Chrome and, you know, double click and everything else. And so, uh, yeah, it was, it was probably the hardest problem I've ever faced was <laughs> how do you innovate around the biggest companies in the world who are actively out to get you? Um, you might call that paranoid. I was very validated when it came out that Google was actually talking to Sheryl Sandberg about not working with us. And I was like, okay, like that sounds crazy that I would be like, oh yeah, Google and Sheryl Sandberg are like out to get me, you know, but it's, it's in writing. And even, I don't care what happens in the antitrust like conversation. I just am glad that that was out there so that I can justify feeling paranoid for 11 plus years that, I, that everyone was out to get me. Well, you certainly got some people's attention. Yeah, Yahoo had an incredible propensity. I spent some time there early in my career and an incredible farm system of talent and I have nothing but great memories, but they did have a real proclivity uh, of buying companies and kind of ruining them relatively quickly. Yeah. Well, I feel like they didn't get a fair shot on right media because, you know, I got fired right before the acquisition. Um, I had a big falling out with the rest of the management team and the board, uh, for many reasons, but the main reason was I didn't want to sell. I thought that this was going to be a massive, massive industry. We had 90% market share. And I was like, look, like we are the most important company in the internet. If we don't sell, you know, <laughs> everyone else was like, Brian, we're going to make hundreds of millions of dollars for working for four years. Like we're all poor. I, I was broke. I mean, it's not like I had any money. I just, I just knew we were onto something. Um, and so I kind of feel like Yahoo didn't get a fair swing because I'm not saying I was the most important person in the world, but I think the idea that they weren't getting all of the innovation and and sort of like technological core. Um, they kind of bought it missing a key piece. And then of course, I was so angry because I got fired that a year later, here comes AppNexus. Um, and so, you know, that's on their corp dev team for not like noticing that they weren't acquiring <laughs> the CTO. Um, but you're right that they just consistently seem to have all the cards you know, and to just somehow just toss them on the floor. I mean, they spent a billion dollars trying to rebuild right media as a, you know, publisher ad server and to like integrate it into their search business. And I mean, imagine what anybody in the sort of startup world could do with a billion dollars. You know, we built the entire right media platform on, I don't know, like $8 million, $20 million of investment. I mean, it was just crazy how much they had going for them. Um, but I loved Yahoo. Like you, I had the best experiences. They were the best client. I met some of my favorite people there. The culture of that campus with the cows and the purple and going to Earl's Cafe. I loved it there. I just thought they were the best place. You know, John Heller was one of our clients there. You know, one of the most brilliant people in advertising, you know, Andy Atherton and Ryan Christensen, all these people. I mean, just some of my favorite people. It was just devastating to get fired and then have them mess it all up. Yeah, I haven't thought of Earl's in years. The uh, I remember when I, the, during the brief tenure, we produced their big events. So Jerry Yang uh, famously uh, was a minority owner of the Pebble Beach Company. He was a great golfer and plays to this day in the Pebble Beach Pro-Am every year. And their one big client event uh, was at Pebble Beach, and I used to run that for them. And, uh, and uh, I remember about a year or so after, 
that started. They had bought broadcast.com all for cash. And that's what made Mark Cuban about give or take $2 billion. And a year later, there was literally nothing left. It, it was really um, quite remarkable how they uh, were able to do that. And I still love the company and love the brand. Uh, and so many people, you know, had bits and bobs of their career there and have gone on to accomplish other things. But they did really have a, a specialty niche in that particular uh, area of, uh, of bungling. Yes. Agreed. Incredible. Incredible. Okay. So we're going to skip over a couple chapters of the career. I, I want to get right to scope three because there's so much to talk about here. It's such an important uh, subject area, uh, one that will define uh, the future of our planet, uh, our failure or, or success. And, and and sadly, I put failure ahead of success because we're so far behind the eight ball. But I'd love to talk about the origin story of scope three and and really get into what you're doing because it's such important work, Brian. Yeah. So after selling App Nexus, I was done with ads. I just didn't want to do it anymore. I felt like all my ideas had all my energy had gone to like advertising. And uh, I was like, I want to do something in the real world. And so with a friend, we started a company called Waybridge that was going to do real world supply path optimization. We were going to go to these like raw metal supply chains and make them more efficient which is a sort of like overlooked part of the physical supply chain. Very successfully built a platform that to this day manages billions of dollars of raw metals, you know, a quarter of American copper, 10% of American aluminum, like really successfully, built almost like an ad server for, for metal. Um, and I wanted to learn more about like how supply chains work. And so I took during COVID a year long class on supply chain management. I just wanted to know like, the math behind it and how do people think about these things? And there was this one lecture where they had a slide about the carbon footprint of a banana. And I was like blown away because I just had this idea that like a banana has a carbon footprint. You can put a little barcode on it and you're done. But actually, because every time you move it, you're incurring more carbon. It actually depends on, do you ship it to Galveston and put it on a train? Do you ship it to Newark and put it on a truck? How long does it sit in an air-conditioned warehouse to ripen? Like, there's not a single number. It's changing constantly. I was like, this is insane. How are we ever going to solve this problem? If every single thing, you have to track every single move and every single transformation. This is as complicated as ad tech. And I was like, wait, I wonder... If you tried to apply the same thinking to ad tech, first of all, no one understands programmatic <laughs> at all. The internet is massive and opaque and stuff moves around all the time. I wonder if marketers have ever thought about how much of their media budget is going to fund data centers at Amazon or to fund these huge backbone pipes of the internet pumping, streaming around. This is all before AI, which makes this an order of magnitude worse. You know, how are marketers thinking about this? I mean, for most big consumer-based companies, marketing is a top 10 expense. Like if you look at their P&L, you know, for some it's a top five or even top three. This is a major problem. And I started asking people I knew, because obviously I know a lot of folks in the industry, and no one had ever thought of it. They thought, you know, if it's in the cloud, like that's fluffy. That's like something really light. Like, look at me. I just moved all my newspaper advertising to the internet. I've saved the world. Well, guess what? That's not true. In many cases, you know, the internet is actually worse for the environment than the equivalent print ad. And the more I dug into this, the more I realized this isn't just an internet advertising problem. This is a civilizational problem. We are amazing. We've, we've mined this entire planet. Like we are using everything we do is touching almost every single place on earth to get rare earth metals and, you know, cotton and cacao and everything is global, but we have no idea how all those pieces are connected. So I thought, well, what if we could do this for one little industry? What if we could just calculate the carbon footprint of every ad impression and show a marketer what that looked like and see if they would be willing to shift a little bit of spend around to greener supply paths? Could we then show publishers and intermediaries that it's actually good business to be greener and start like a virtuous cycle of decarbonization, the same way I had sparked this virtuous cycle of programmatic going the other direction. 
And so this just, I just got, you know, I got obsessed with this idea. I was still the CEO of Waybridge. We raised $30 million from investors. They were so excited about Waybridge. I couldn't help it. You know, I just couldn't stop thinking about this idea. I was like, I think that's what I'm supposed to do. I invented this whole thing. I'm a computer scientist. I get these supply chains and how they work. Maybe I'm supposed to do this. And one day I went to my board and I said, I would like to quit my job. And they're like, what? And I was like, I would like you to give me half the money I raised. I would like to start a brand new company. I would like all of you to be investors. I would like to take a few people with me. And I think we can change the world. And they're like, can you write this up? And I was like, yeah, here's a paragraph. That's all I know. You're going to have to trust me. And that was how we started Scope 3. The investors, I don't know if they just believe in me or didn't feel like they had a choice. Um, I got a few amazing people along to co-found the company with me. And, you know, the rest is kind of history. We just got so lucky that we timed this in a way that was perfectly aligned to the industry waking up to this. You have the WFA, you have Group M, you have, you know, at net zero starting, you just have all these folks like pushing at the exact same moment that I saw the same opportunity. And it's just one of those things where like, you know, you're the surfer on the ocean and you're just out there waiting. And then the big wave comes and everyone's like, wow, you rode this amazing wave. And it's like, yeah, you know, I knew it was going to happen. Of course it was obvious. The big wave was coming right then. It wasn't obvious. It was largely just my passion being at the right place in the right time with the ability to ride the wave. Um, but that's what Scope 3's felt like. It just feels like, you know, doing something incredibly important and just getting really lucky that all the conditions were right to make it possible. What a great story. And I'm sure I'm missing something obvious, but where does the name come from? So in the world of carbon accounting and environmental like sort of analysis, um, they think that emissions have three scopes. Scope one is what you burn yourself. Like if you have a furnace or a smelter, scope two is indirect emissions from the electricity that you use. So, you know, you could look at your power bill at your house and figure out, you know, based on the grid mix, like exactly what you're responsible for. Scope three is literally everything else in your value chain. It's all your employees commuting and your travel. It's all your vendors and your servers. It's, how your customers use your products. Like it's, it's pretty much everything. So scope three is just like sustainability geek terminology for like supply chain. Gotcha, and gotcha. it's, it's super fun because whenever, you know, you read about the sec or whatever, like, Oh, the sec is going to mandate scope three reporting, you know, and traffic to our site spikes. And I'm like, well, but actually, you know, advertising is one of the most important categories. So do come to our site, yeah. you know, <laughs> I'm all for that. Gotcha. Great stuff. So you're coming up uh, January will be two years. Yeah. Give us a sense as to where we are, where you thought you would be two years in and give us sort of a, you know, state of the union, if you will. I'd say when we started, I kind of felt like Don Quixote, you know, like I really was worried we were tilting at windmills. And a lot of my friends in the industry said, look, no one's ever going to truly care about sustainability. And I think everyone just come off DEI and just seeing it not really become as central as it probably should have been. The difference being, it's really hard to create diverse owned media. It's not that hard to make websites and ad tech companies green. Anybody can be green. You just have to make some choices. So I think that first year was like a wake-up call for the industry. I think we were right at the center of that. I think this year, you've seen a lot of standardization efforts. You've seen some competitors enter the market. Um, I think we realized that every company in this space is going to need a sustainability platform. And if you don't have a sustainability platform, like put it in your 2024 budget. It doesn't have to be scope three, but you need a partner that you can trust to help you understand you know, not just your own carbon footprint, but how all your partners are playing into that. And you need to start taking action today. So I think we're leaving 2023 with a pretty good sense that not only is this a good idea, it's actually practical, like it works. We've gone from like early adopter to like more of a pragmatist where, you know, maybe a third of advertisers take action next year. It's not a majority. Um, and I think next year is going to be the year where 
we really start to see adoption. To me, it's like when Gartner or Forrester or other analysts start to create like magic quadrants. You know, when you start seeing agencies coming out with position papers on different partners, you know, when you start seeing some of the biggest advertisers in the world, you know, make a commitment to like part of the industry, whether, you know, think about viewability or brand safety or things like that. I think that's 2024. And so what we've been doing is trying to get the, the team in place and the product to a maturity where we can actually satisfy global companies. The biggest challenge for us is work with a, a Unilever or a Procter and Gamble or a Coke or a Pepsi. Like these are global companies. They need a partner that can measure in Japan and Australia and India and Mexico and Canada, you know, L'Oreal, like these are not companies that can work with a local player. They can't work with someone who's raised a couple million bucks and is like, you know, playing around. They need a legit enterprise partner. So that's 2024 for us. Raised a bunch of money, staffing up, massively expanding our engineering and product teams to build that product so that we can actually solve this problem for the most important companies in the world. Um, and, and we've seen this movie before I've been part of this movie before. Um, but it's a lot of work, you know, I feel like this was the fun year and I feel like next year, like we're we're just finishing our plan. I'm like, man, we have a lot to do, you know, and it's not like the glamorous fun stuff, but it's like how you turn something into a real solution. Okay. So let's, let's go through, uh, the process, if you will, let's say for sake of conversation that tomorrow I go out and I buy Toyota. And I now own this global automotive company. We manufacture all over the world. We sell all over the world. Our supply chain is all over the world. And I come to you and I say, Brian, I want scope three to take us on. And you say, great, I'm going to, this is how the deal works and take me through the process. What happens? Yeah. So I think the first thing is to figure out how to get a strong baseline measurement. And generally we work with ad agencies. So media agencies have a lot of the pieces. We're just starting to work with creative production as well. But what we need to do is go to every place where you're spending money basically and get enough granular data to be able to get a pretty good sense of how the money you're spending is driving carbon. I would say that in the programmatic world, we have a really good sense of this. Uh, because it's inherently open. When you start spending in walled gardens, it gets harder. Um, so if you think about Meta, you know they have a very high quality sustainability report, but it's not really broken down to how you can trace your investment in Instagram back to carbon. And so that's where we get into this challenge, which is we only know what we know. And so that's where today we would ask you as Toyota, to give your friends at Meta a call and say, can you help me get my emission responsibility from you? Can you help me work with scope three to get this data? Um, And, you know, because I would think, I would think a healthy amount of what's going on is within that group that you can't see. Correct. And so we have decent heuristics. Like we can look at their sustainability report and get some pretty good conclusions. But what I want is not a measurement. What I want is action. What I want to know is, okay, and now what? What can I do about this? Should I run fewer higher paid ads? Should I run more lower paid ads? Should I buy smaller videos? Should I buy non-skippable video? You know, what, what can I do? And so what we're seeing right now is that many platforms, um, many ad tech companies are working with Scope 3 to come up with not just a measurement, but with enough granularity of that measurement that when you as Toyota say, okay, great. Like I see where my emissions are coming from. What can I do? Cause that's the part that matters. The measurement is only to inform the hotspots. And we might say, well, you know, programmatic is a hotspot. You know, you're buying a lot of really high carbon domains and you know, they're actually not all that performant. Why don't you take some money from those high carbon, low performance domains and move that to some lower carbon, higher performance partners. That creates incentive. Now they might say, well, what about these high carbon, high performance partners? Call them up, pick up the phone and say, hey, could you please clean up your ad stack? (laughs) You're killing my carbon number and I wanna work with you. 
And by the way, this is what the agencies are doing today. They're using our data to pick up the phone. Um, and I think that's actually how the world changes. It's not algorithms directly. It's the algorithms that change behaviors when people pick up the phone. So that's part of, obviously, as a client, we would do all the heavy lifting, you know, and work with the agencies and figure this stuff out. But what we'd want is that after a year of working together, we could say, you know, you went from here to there, you cut your overall footprint by a third, and we've improved media efficiency. It turns out that a lot of the places where people are spending money aren't that effective. And it's kind of hard to see it through a money lens, but when you look at it through a carbon lens, it actually changes how we think about things. You know, I, I see this in my own life, you know, where I'm about to buy a bottle of water, you know, it costs like $7 at the airport. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to bring my water bottle with me. I do religiously carry my water bottle around, but I've saved, I bet I've saved a couple hundred bucks this year just on airport water bottles. And that's probably 20 or 30 bottles of water, you know, that weren't transported to the airport. That's plastic that wasn't used. The exact same analogy applies to media where it's not like, I mean, I, I can afford 25 bottles of water. You know, every brand has things that they're doing from a media perspective that aren't horrible, but they pop differently when you look at it through this lens. And that's really the value I think we provide is a new perspective on the media supply chain. And talk about the response to scope three on the agency side, whole co's and independence and on the brand side. I think we've been really fortunate. You, you mentioned the WFA event. I mean, it was such a gift to have the chance to come to Istanbul and to meet with you know some of the biggest, most influential marketers in the world. Um, I learned a ton just hearing how they think about this problem. And I think what you have is humans, people, you know, I think about Rupin Desai, who, you know, is just so passionate about doing the right thing. And at the same time, could also talk about as a marketer, his obligation to drive outcomes for his client or for his brands, and that it really needs to be both. And I really appreciate that honesty. And I think it's right. We all have a job to do and we have to do our job and we should do it as sustainably as possible. And so I think that response has been both pragmatic and optimistic from the advertiser community. I think agencies have actually been shockingly positive about sustainability. You, you hear them talk about pre-competitive and I appreciate the idea of pre-competitive. Um, I don't think it's like a sequence. It's not like you solve sustainability and then compete. Um, I think it's like sort of to the side of competition. Um, and that's been a, a, a real treat having come from programmatic where it felt like everybody chose their you know, strategic platform and all these things. And how do we make money from it? I've never heard an agency say, I wanna turn a profit on sustainability. And that's shocking after two years. Um, I think the independent agencies have more, I don't know, like more unified action in a way. So, you know, Horizon Media here in New York has been just an amazing innovator around sustainability. They've invested their data science resources to, to figure this out. Um, but the big holding companies, I mean, again and again and again have invested resources. You know, we're doing dashboarding projects at scale with Dentsu with Omnicom, with Group M, you know, we do a ton with, with Publicis, you know, it, it, IPG has been awesome. They've got a whole media brands has a big dashboarding project here with some of their biggest clients. Um, Havas was one of our first partners. Every major holding company has done not just like a small thing with us have actually used our APIs, used our data, invested their own money, not their clients' money. I mean, that's shocking. If you think about this being a two-year-old initiative, um, and even the ad tech community, you know, almost every ad tech company works with us and they're building green products. They believe that this is a revenue opportunity. <laughs> they don't always love our perspective. I will say like, sometimes we'll point out inefficiencies in their supply chain. Um, but more, more often than not, they're like, ah, you're right. Let's fix that together. Sometimes we're wrong and we fix it. Um, but yeah, it's been, it's been kind of amazingly positive. And almost too good to be true as an entrepreneur because it's the impact that makes me excited and the, the sense of community around it and collaboration. Like 
if you told me two years ago that the whole industry would be collaborating to solve this problem together, I would have fallen over. But that's that's how it's that's how it's played out. And do you think, you know, to me, the whole movement with DEI, and it was one of the drivers, frankly, of why we launched Advertising Week in Africa, because I could not think of a more powerful statement that you could make about being serious about diversity than literally, you know, packing up the circus and going to, in our case, Johannesburg. Uh, and uh, my observation with DEI is that it's been an awful lot of lip service and, you know, most often companies hiring, you know, someone, you know, 38 to 42 at a healthy salary, putting out a press release, he or she, more often a woman than a man, gets a job on the executive floor and then no budget and no money and nothing really happens. It seems like, and I'm being a little harsh, but purposefully harsh. It seems like as it relates to sustainability, that that uh, convergence of purpose and profit seems to be more genuine and that there is a, a much greater embrace of this at all levels of our industry. What's your take on that? The nice thing about carbon is it's quantifiable in a way that is easy to aggregate. So I can look up my supply chain and I can say, your carbon plus your carbon plus your carbon equals my carbon. And that makes it something that's very easy to report to government agencies, to investors. It's a very, like, it's very aligned to other sort of metrics that people can operate and manage to. Um, so I think the problem with DEI for me was it's hard to aggregate. You know, let's say that, you know, that company's board has two women and this one has one black man. Do I get a diversity score for that? You know, and like, then there's all these complexities of, you know, okay, my supplier is minority owned, but all they do is operate with their, you know, partners are all not like, how do I think about it? And so it's so easy to almost gotcha and, and say, it's not doing anything. I, I also think the systemic nature of diversity is so complicated to, like, it, it takes decades to change the, you know, foundations of an economy because of just how long it takes to train people and create opportunities. It might be even generational. So for me, when I think about my own diversity focus, like I'm thinking about this in a generational context at AppNexus, I was so fortunate to bump into Reshma Saujani, who was trying to found an organization called Girls Who Code. And she was looking for a place to, to launch it. And I just said, sure, use our boardroom. And so the very first Girls Who Code event, the summer was in our boardroom. We didn't have a boardroom for a year or for a summer. And it was my employees, my engineering leaders who did the teaching. And it was so successful that she was able to expand it and launch it. And thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of girls have now been exposed to technology because of girls who code. And all I did was say yes. I mean, truly, Reshma and her team did everything else, you know, but I'm so proud of saying yes, because it would have been a lot easier to say no. And, you know, to me, that's where my daughter goes to a school that has a girls who code chapter. Now she doesn't do it, which drives me crazy because I'm like, my goodness, you know, you've met Reshma, you've been to the place where it was all started. Like how, she's like, no dad, I want to play volleyball. You can only win so many battles, okay, as a parent. But like that to me is where we really see generational change is we all have to say yes to women more. We have to say yes to black entrepreneurs more. We have to create more opportunities for Hispanic leaders in our organization. You know, every one of these things, you know, and, and so many more, right, is after decades of yes, maybe we'll get there. Um, so sustainability in a way is almost an easier problem. Um, because it's like, you know, stop putting plastic bottles in your workforce that will do a little, you know, clean up your ad stack that will do a lot, you know, go figure out how to make your data centers twice as efficient. That will do way more. Like there's very tangible today actions that almost universally save us money. And so that's the difference. Um, and I think your cynicism is well founded. I don't want to give up on diversity. I don't think no, we can no, nor, declare. Nor, nor do we. Nor do yeah. We. So that, I mean, I love what you did in Africa. And I feel like Africa is an area where like, you know, my wife and I do 
almost like the majority of our philanthropy in Africa, because a dollar goes so much further if you're investing it in the right organizations and really being thoughtful about how to have an impact. Because the, the, to have the same impact on someone's life in the US is like thousands of dollars. And you can do it for like $20 in Africa. That's just how out of whack we are about our investment, our, our moral, spiritual, ethical, financial investment in Africa. I love what you did. We all need to do it. And then I look at the business justification of like scope three Africa, probably not this year, but I feel like we have to be thinking about that today so that we're not leaving behind what will be one of the biggest consumer markets in the world by the end of the century. Like this is a financial opportunity, more middle-class people in Africa than anywhere else in the world. And so that's just my, I always try to take it back to money because that's how we speak in a capitalistic world. But, but, you know, it's also the right thing to do. Yeah, no, you're a hundred percent right. The only continent on the planet that's growing, the average age is half of what it is in America and Europe and the UK. So I couldn't agree more. Well, Brian, this was an awful lot of fun. I'm so glad we got a chance to spend some time together. I love what you're doing. We'd love to help you more. I think we've undercooked what we've done uh, with scope three. I think, you know, it's a very big issue for us and uh, we're actually working on something now that I'm really excited about. That will be a new event uh, in Boston next year called climate tech about the intersection of the climate crisis and technology that we're doing with the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, Massachusetts, as it turns out, produces give or take 40% of all the research and development globally on the intersection of climate and technology. And it's driven largely by Harvard and MIT, yeah. uh, which makes sense when you say Harvard and MIT. And we were summoned uh, by the Secretary of Economic Development for the Commonwealth, a very bright woman named Yvonne Howe. She was a partner at Bain. So she's approaching it from a capitalist vantage point. And um, we haven't announced it yet. It's, it's something brand new that um, goes beyond our industry. Uh, and uh, we're excited about it. I'd love to get you involved in that. And um, it's an issue that we're very passionate about. We've been lucky enough to work with Richard Curtis and Project Everyone on uh, the, its halftime campaign. It's a great spot. I, I imagine you've seen it with Al Pacino and uh, very powerful. And uh, I love what you're doing and I can't thank you enough for spending some time with us uh, and really appreciate it. Awesome. Well, I'd love to be part of that event and uh, thank you for caring so much and uh, really appreciate the conversation. It was super fun. Great. Thanks, Brian. All right. Thanks, Matt. See ya.